When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. There's a scene where, briefly, where I am protested by some vegan activists and there's a sign that it says something along the lines of Brian Cateman speaking at an animal rights conference is like Donald Trump speaking at a women's rights conference. So there's a lot, mm. lot baked in there. But I felt like, you know, I'm on your team. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best Finally, I can say I watched a genuinely balanced documentary about the food and the environment. I've seen all the classics, What the Hell, Forks Over Knives, Game Changers, Food Inc, Seaspiracy and others like Kiss the Ground. And I'm constantly asked about it on social media and by friends. The conversation usually goes like this. Did you see insert documentary name? What did you think? And invariably, I always have to point out the flaws, biases, the shock tactics, the spin. But this documentary is refreshingly different. Meet Me Halfway, meat as in meat, animal meat, produced by my guest today, Brian Capeman. And it's a documentary about finding common ground at the dinner table. It poses more questions than answers, and it allows you to make your own mind up. It doesn't have a clear ideology woven through the narrative and it's more exploratory than it is explanatory or defensive. And when I was watching the movie, I made notes to pick up on with Brian when I knew I was going to interview him, the documentary host, about it. But a little later in the movie, they discussed the nuance of that very topic. I didn't have many follow-up questions to the answers they posed at the end of the movie, because there weren't that many answers. And that's because this is super complicated. And the conversation that we're having within our own avocado toast eating echo chambers centers around idealism rather than practicality. And this is why I thought this documentary was particularly great. Brian is also co-founder and president of the Reducitarian Foundation, a 
a non-profit organization dedicated to reducing consumption of meat, eggs, and dairy to create a healthy, sustainable, and compassionate world. The Meet Me Halfway book is out next year, and the Reducitarian Cookbook is available already in good bookstores. And listen to the end where I reveal my favorite meat alternatives and hacks to reduce your meat consumption whilst maintaining a nutrient-dense diet. And you can find all the links to the movies at thedoxiskitchen.com where you can also sign up to our weekly newsletter. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. So on to the pod. I would have never have understood the love for a puppy until um, I got mine last year uh, in uh, in April, I think it was, when we got Little Nutmeg. And I was never a dog person, right? Never a dog person. Uh, I mean, my best friend had a puppy uh, and he, he's got a picture just like that in his office in like blown up, like full size. <laughs> and I, I remember going to his office one day. He, he used to live in Miami. Going to his office, it was like, don't people think you just like... You just look ridiculous with <laughs> this massive puppy on your, and you're at work and you're people's boss, you know. And now I'm like looking at those puppy pictures. And I'm like, I need to get one of mine and like mine and put mine behind the the uh, on the wall here. It does look. That, that it it looks awesome. a little bit like a shrine, but it, yeah. It, it, <laughs> once you once you fall in love with with a companion animal, you you start to get it. And by the way, Nutmeg is a very cute name. That's awesome, Nutmeg. Yeah, yeah. She's gorgeous as well. She just, uh, she's a cavapoo. She just never grew. So um, she's actually yay big, even though she's uh, like 20 months now. She should be like three times the size, but it's perfect for London. And, you know, we, we live in an apartment, but we've got the park there and it's just the best thing that ever happened to her. And I, I could have never imagined me saying that uh 18 months ago and you know what this will come up in the discussion i guess because toby makes um an appearance in the documentary that's right uh which is why i recognize uh, <laughs> uh toby there um but that getting a dog and living with an animal really changed my perspective on on me and now i i, I feel like i'm educated enough to know uh, about production and how it's produced and you know the pros and cons of 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 meat in general but living with an animal completely changed my my perspective i mean how long have you had a had a dog yourself you know i grew up with a i grew up with a cat when i was like 10 my sister and i um I, my parents didn't want a cat and my sister and i were like screw it. We're getting a cat. <laughs> so we, so <laughs> nice. we brought a kitten home and I remember my, it took like my mom a week to get on board. Um, and then they, you know, she fell in love with, with Simba too. Um, we've had Toby and Cooper. So Toby's six years old and, and Cooper's about two. And I did not want a dog. Um, my, my now wife, Isabel wanted one. And I thought, you know, it's going to be so much work. Like I'm doing all these cool things. Um, and I remember even a couple days after I'm going to, we're going to lose some, some listeners with this comment, but I remember a couple of days after being like, we still could find like a really great home for Toby. Like it doesn't have to be our home. It, you know, we're going to make sure this dog is really happy. Uh, and then like within a week or two, I was, you know, over the moon and I got it and it's completely worth it. Uh, but yeah, you know, it, we abstractly think about animals, non-human animals as being very different from us. And in some ways they are, of course, but they also have personalities and joys and, and lows. And, um, I mean, to me, dogs are very similar to babies. They're, 
very innocent. They're just sort of bundles of joy. And it's our, our responsibility to be stewards of, of their life. And um, mm. yeah, it's a really, really wonderful experience for anyone who hasn't really bonded with an animal before. But I, I think a lot of people have. And sometimes it just takes, uh, you know, thinking about other animals right outside of dogs and cats and extending that kind of generosity to others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, um, I have my partner to, uh, to thank as well for, uh, getting the dog. Cause I was dead set against getting a dog. I was like, it's going to be way too much work and I don't have time and I'm, you know, uh, and everything else, but you, you end up working around them and you make it work. And when you allow that, that being to come into your life, they can just provide so much joy. Um, anyway, I could spend the rest of the podcast just chatting about dogs, but we're, we're going to move on to <laughs> tell me a bit about, um, your background and your, and where you grew up and stuff. You, you touch a bit of that in the documentary, um, which I thought was excellent by the way. And we'll, we'll get to the reasons why I just think it's such a good documentary and it's so telling the amount of effort you, you put into it and, and why I think it's better than most documentaries I've seen. Um, and the popular ones that people will have heard of. But t t yeah, t tell me a bit about like your background and, and where you grew up and stuff. Well, thanks for those comments about Meet Me Halfway. Yeah, really excited about the documentary. Um, I grew up in Staten Island, New York. And for those who know um, Staten Island, it's sort of the, it's called the forgotten borough. It's kind of often the joke of New York City. It's not a partic particularly progressive place. Um, I didn't grow up with a lot of swanky plant-based restaurants around. I didn't know... Um, really, let alone any vegans or vegetarians, really people who didn't go to McDonald's and Burger King and, you know, very, very often. If it was a special treat, my parents would go to Applebee's and Chili's and, you know, popular chain restaurants um, in the United States. But mm -hmm. one of the parts I really did like growing up um, in Staten Island was there was a lot of nature. There was a lot of natural spaces and green trails. And as a young kid, that's kind of where I fell in love with the environment and specifically the animals in the wild. I was fascinated by squirrels and raccoons and birds. Uh, and so when I got to college, uh, I was your sort of typical card carrying environmentalist. I would tell people that they should recycle and compost and walk instead of drive and not use plastic bottles and so on. Um, but uh, eventually I made the connection to food. I was actually on my way to present some undergraduate research on climate change with some classmates. And you have to imagine this, I'm genuinely on a plane eating a hamburger and a friend of mine who I think gave it to me with a sense of sincerity, because he knows I'm interested in these sort of philosophical ideas, gave me this book called The Ethics of What We Eat by Peter Singer and Jim Mason. And that was really the first time that I made the connection to food. Um, you know, uh, it was the first time I realized that many of my food choices weren't aligned with my values. That I was eating food that was not kind to animals and not uh, kind to the environment and certainly not kind to my health. And I'm happy to go into to more detail about um, any of this. But essentially, that was really a light bulb moment for me. And growing in, up in Staten Island certainly played a, a key role in, in shaping my um, relationship to food. Yeah. And, and have you, so I'm, I'm assuming you don't, it's, it's clear in the, in the documentary that you are vegan, but is that, is that something that you still practice now? You, you, do you, do you eat vegan? Have you, have you always been a vegan now since then? I actually wouldn't describe myself as vegan. I would say that I try to be as vegan as possible. Um, mm. 
I don't worry about um, the occasional inclusion of animal products in my diet. And, you know, here's really the the nuts and bolts of, of all of this, right? It's like, um, I don't like factory farming. Uh, I'm very concerned about the way we raise animals for food. Very few people like factory farming. You put mm-hmm. lots of animals in uh, very small spaces. You know, birds can barely move. Pigs can't walk, walk around. Very cruel conditions. Very destructive to the environment. You have to clear land. Emits lots of CO2 emissions, emissions. Uses a ton of water and other natural resources and so on. And these products are not healthy. I mean, these highly processed foods are not good for people. Um, but most people are not going to go vegan or vegetarian, uh, including my parents, who I love very much. And growing up in Staten Island, very few people I know in Staten Island would have any shot of thinking they're going to go vegan or vegetarian. And the question I ask myself is, what can we do instead? And um, my view is what we can do instead is move away from this all or nothing premise that a person is either a vegan or an omnivore. And I take that with respect to my own lifestyle. Um, I do my absolute best to try and eat as many foods that are kind to my body, the planet and animals. But um, what's often difficult for people who care a lot about issues is to let go of being perfect and to Mm. um, try to let go of the guilt and the judgment of ourselves and of others. And that's really... um, something that I'm sure I'll continue to struggle with, like, because I'm human, but I do my best. And so I try to eat as many plant-based foods um, as possible. And that's really my, my current diet. You, you know, my favorite bit in the movie, I think, was in the first 10 minutes when you have a really poignant and authentic conversation with your parents. And like you described, you know, y- your parents are, uh, I would say, perhaps typical of the Staten Island area. They, you know, you weren't judgmental. It wasn't shaming. And I think there were so many opportunities for someone to act in that way, even if they were trying to be as loving as possible. But, you know, to give some context to the listeners, you mentioned something about avocado toast and they were like, what on earth is avocado (laughs) toast? And most people listening to this in our echo chamber will also think, what on earth? How do they not know about avocado toast? But that's the majority of people, particularly in America, who have no idea about the impact of factory farming. Or if they do, they don't make the connection between the environmental impact as, you, as your parents didn't either. And they question it because they, they want to continue to do things that are considered quote unquote normal to them. Um, but I thought that was perhaps the most telling bit of the, of the documentary and something that we certainly have to have more of a conversation about. Uh, and this is why I love the whole, uh, the whole aspect of reducitarianism, uh, for want of a better word, because I, th- I think, um, yeah, that w- we need to embrace that a lot more. I really appreciate that. And my dad still feels like a superstar, so I'm going to let him know you were, you were happy with that scene. Um, yeah, a reducitarian is anyone, right, who's decided to cut back on the amount of animal products that they consume and kind of letting go of this all or nothing premise. I'm so grateful for my parents. Um, and in many ways, but this way in particular, in the context of this conversation, is that they really ground me. As you say, it's very easy to get lost in our own little bubbles and echo chambers. And it's it can be frustrating to surround yourself with people who um, in some ways fundamentally disagree with your major outlooks on life, but it's super useful. And I really encourage people um, not to block that person on Facebook that has a different view than them to read news sources, um, you know, and that are not necessarily exactly in their in their politics, for example, because it's very useful for 
for, for thinking about how to go about making change. And, um, yeah, my parents, uh, you know, had never had guacamole before. And I wasn't that surprised by this, but my director was shocked. I remember at the grocery, <laughs> we're, we're at the grocery store and he, you know, he's like, uh, we got to make them like this elaborate meal and do something really fun. I was like, dude, this, they had McDonald's probably right before this. Like, there's no elaborate meal. We're going to scare them off if we throw, you know, this like really complicated salad. We got to go something simple. And I think I just happenstantially picked up, a, you know, this tub of, of guacamole. Uh, and it made for an amazing scene because you can feel the legitimate fear, um, particularly in my mom, but also my mm. dad. Uh, and the anxiety in trying a food that they're not accustomed to, expecting that they're not going to like it in part because they're they're they were right their taste buds are 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 so accustomed to highly salted and fatty and sugary foods that they're probably not going to like something that that's significantly more whole and natural uh and i think it's a shocking scene to a lot of people but um very very informative and useful in thinking about how we're going to um address the systemic issues we have in terms of people's diets. And so, and then, yeah, as you said, you know, the, the cool thing on this is my dad doesn't necessarily care about environmental issues or animals. And this is important to, to think about, right? Because mm. what message are we going to provide to people? And I wish he did, but he does care about his health. And so what I have found is I try to lean into that message as much as possible with my parents and maybe for a younger generation, um, who, you know, is not necessarily thinking about heart disease at 17, but might be thinking about the climate crisis, uh, you lean into that messaging. So factory farming is so destructive in so many ways that we do have an opportunity to leverage these different um, points of messaging for different audiences. But um, yeah, it's it's super interesting to uh, to hang out and know people who... Uh, I have a completely different mindset and we're going to have to f find a way to reach common ground because it's the only way forward. And that's really, um, as you've implied, uh, an important ethos of the film. Yeah, definitely. And you, you, the, the reason why I loved it so much is because that mirrors a lot of the conversation that I have with patients one on one. So I, you know, I, when I work clinically, I'm not seeing the same kind of person that might listen to this podcast or have a genuine interest in nutritional medicine, or follow my recipes, or buy my cookbooks, I'm having a genuine conversation with someone who's come there, obviously for a health issue, and different people of different ages have different motivators. And like you said, you know, you leaned into your dad's motivation to be healthy. Um, and I think even at the end of the film, he was like, I didn't even realize how unhealthy I was until <laughs> nice. I actually started reducing meat. And then I, you know, I lost all this weight and I feel great now. So, you know, sometimes they don't even know that that's something that they need to do in order to feel better. And uh, they don't realize how, how poorly they feel. But to, to that point, everyone has different motivators. And I don't think the vegan message and this is nothing against plant-based uh, individuals or plant-based professionals. We've had a whole bunch on this podcast as well. Um, I don't think that brand is appropriate for the vast majority of people that I come across. So if I was to say, you know, you need to remove all animal products, it's not ethical, it uh, isn't good for the environment, it's not going to be good for future generations, yada, 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 all, all the points. 
it will fall on deaf ears and it'll be frustrating for both parties, as it was in, in some cases for the people that you interviewed, uh, I thought. I, I mean, I would go as to say as it's not a question of think. The, the facts are there. I mean, 1% of the, let's take, you know, 1% of the United States is vegan. Half of those people probably include some amount of animal products in their diet. They were just like me and didn't have a word to describe themselves mm. as someone who occasionally includes animal products in their diet. I mean, one of the, the, the things I laugh, I laugh at every time I think about the film is when my parents are talking about how pizza they think is, as a health food. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm like, who says this? You know, who told you this? And the reaction is scientists said this. And I'm sure there's lot, there was, you know, lots of advertising and campaigning. And then it's related to what you do. Um, one of the interviewees talked about how medical prof- you know, professionals and, and doctors often um, don't necessarily talk about diet. And I'm sure mm. there are interesting reasons for that. Maybe you have perspective on that. But it's something that I'm, I'm grateful for that what you do, because I think that, um, you know, there's just it's it, someone has, uh, let's say, stomach issues and they're eating really unhealthy food. Well, have you tried eating more fiber, but instead go straight to the medication? Um, but at the same time, someone like my mom, who is very resistant to change, is not she still hasn't made any changes to her diet. So these are really difficult questions. And, and by the way. Telling someone to eat less meat, as you know from seeing the film, also is, is a challenging task. Mm. Any kind yeah. of change is hard. But I agree um, that asking people to give up all the foods that they love, all the memories, associations, forget that hot dog at the baseball game, no more turkey at the Thanksgiving table. I mean, when you really boil that down on an emotional level, it, be- it becomes so obvious how um, alienating that kind of message can be to a lot of people, which is unfortunate because the vegan message has merit to it in terms of its kindness to animals and, and its aspirations toward being kinder to the planet uh, and so on. So these are tricky, tricky questions. And that I think comes across on the documentary that there are no simple solutions and that this is really, really challenging. But I'm grateful for people that care and are doing the best that they can with respect to their own choices and encouraging others to um, make choices that are in line with their values. Yeah, yeah. You, the, the Americans are actually a little bit ahead when it comes to teaching nutrition to their medical students. Um, we, we've had a, a couple of docs on who talk about the culinary medicine programs at Tulane and Columbia and uh, Harvard Public School of Medicine have got one as well. Um, and we're trying to mimic what they're doing over here in the UK uh, and a couple of universities that we've we've got a non-profit in. Um, and I, I wonder, would you know the documentary, it starts with... Um, you know the scientist who talks about how climate change is irreversible, and it and it it gives me the impression that this is going to be one of those inconvenient truth movies where a whole bunch of scientists talk about how the Earth is doomed in the next ten fifteen years, and then the the you know the message at the end is just go vegan or just do this or just do regenerative farming, um, but it, it it obviously morphs into something a lot more relatable and a lot more nuanced. I, I, I my question when that happened because I was thinking about it from a film production perspective did you envisage the documentary looking something quite different to what it ended up looking like prior to starting i'm laughing because making a film was was one of the hardest things i've ever done it took yeah it took five years um took five years oh my god i'm 32 and i've you know uh when i started doing this work i was in my early 20s 
but I still have no clue what I'm doing. I mean, it's just this kind of, you just figure it out as you go along and you make an ambitious goal. And it's kind of amazing that it can, it can, it can come together. Um, but no, I had no clue what the film was going to be. I said, I want to make a film. I know I want it to be about, you know, getting people to eat less meat. Um, originally the film started as a, this kind of like, I, I would almost call it like a puff piece. We were going to like, you know, find people and get them to eat fewer animal products and see what their journey would like and go visit, go to grocery stores and the kind of things you've, you've probably seen. And it was going to take a kind of very simple um, agenda. And what I found as we were going through the experience was that there was no way to tell this, this story in an honest, truthful way without showing the complexities and the different opinions. And I it's funny, I entered this movement feeling really confident. I was, I, maybe it was because I was 23 and I thought I had all the answers. And I was very simple. It was like, stop telling people to go vegan, tell them to eat less meat, all the problems will be fixed, very simple. And I quickly learned that that's not right. It's just not the case. Telling people to do anything is challenging and there's all these societal forces that you know, make the default choice often ones that are not in the interest of, of people or animals and the environment. And so that... Thankfully, I had that growth at the right time because we were able to pivot and say, let's really ask a different question here. Why is it so difficult to get people to eat less meat? Let's start there because every documentary you see is it's so easy to get people to go vegan. Just, you know, eat more plants and you'll be you'll be really fit and healthy and beautiful and all these things. And it and I know they become very popular, these documentaries, and they certainly resonate with some segment of the population. But I also have other I have friends who are from Staten Island who don't see these films and that they don't change their diet doesn't resonate with them. Um, and so, um, yeah, we entered from that perspective. You know, there's so many things that I didn't expect, right? Like there's a scene where I go vi- visit pigs that are on their way to, to, to slaughter. And I remember telling my director, I really don't want to do this. Like this sounds mm. awful. It's very outside my comfort zone. And you can see on camera, I'm genuinely... Um, uncomfortable because it's a terrible, you know, thing to witness. And even hanging out with, you know, Will, who I think the world of, the, the farmer in, um, mm. in Bluffton, Georgia, such a cool person. Um, what a weird experience for me. Like, I'm a kid from Staten Island. Here I am hanging out in, you know, what feels to me like the middle of nowhere, um, you know, with, with this amazing farmer, his awesome accent and these animals on the farm. And so, you know, I benefited a little from being somewhat sheltered because you see an authentic growth in me over time. And that's why the film um, changed so much over the years, because as I was learning, I was, we were adapting our thinking accordingly. And um, I still learn new things, um, but I do feel like, you know, um, if I had made the film at that five-year point, it would have been uh, much less informed uh, and much more um, biased and sort of single-issued. And yeah, so... That's, that's, but yes, making a film is insane and, um, it's not for the faint of heart. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. What a revelation that it took five years. And it's almost like I can see that journey from in the space of like an hour and 20 minutes, however long it it was. Um, because it's, it, it, when you watch a typical documentary, the, the stance is sort of already made up and then the rest of the film is just there to 
further and further convince you towards an argument that has already been predetermined? Or is this one, you didn't really know where it was going, actually, because at, at the start, um, I mean, it looks like you were, you were pretty ostracized by the vegan community. Uh, I'm not too sure if that's still the case. I mean, you, you do get a lot of stick from people because they don't, you don't really ascribe to their, their sort of rules or their beliefs and stuff. And they, they believe it's like an attack on on their principles, is that fair to say? You know, it's tricky. There definitely is a segment of the vegan community that, though extremely well-meaning and in some ways has the, you know, the morality backing them, um, has a no tolerance for anything that deviates from that kind of message. And there's a, there's a scene where, um, briefly, where I am protested by um, some vegan activists and there's a sign that um, it says something along the lines of um, Brian Cateman speaking at an animal rights conference is like Donald Trump speaking at a women's rights conference. Um, so there's a lot, mm. lot baked in there. Um, but I felt like, you know, I'm on your team. You know, the, there's a whole other pe- group of people who you really take issue with. On the other hand, so many nice vegans, so many welcoming vegans, so many understanding vegans. Um, um, don't care about purity or just working to make. So it's a, you know, sometimes those loud voices can, um, can outshine mm. the more um, pragmatic ones. But yeah, definitely not, not a, I mean, the reality is everyone has had the experience of meeting one person who shames them for their diet. And I don't know about you, anytime I've been shamed, you know, I just have these like defense mechanisms and I just, I psychologically don't, don't necessarily think it works um but yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i'm lucky in that um i don't think i've ever really been truly attacked personally uh or in real life if i'm honest um about my thoughts i mean I, i'm plot focused i've never made um any deviation from that over the last you know 10 years since i've been taking a, a further interest in nutrition um you know, I ascribe principles like eating whole foods, eating colorful, eating more fiber, uh, reducing meat and eating quality meat. Um, but my, my, my diet is very, very plant-based around 85, 90%. Um, but people do mistake, uh, me for being vegan because most of my recipes are vegetarian. And when they find out it can be, I can understand why it irks them a bit it's almost like oh you tricked me somehow but I've, I've I, I always make it very clear uh, in any of my writing and on the podcast and all that kind of stuff um and my experience probably mimics uh, yours in a lot of ways in that the vast majority of people that I've met who eat a certain way are very respectful and very tolerant and very understanding and they choose a different way and that's totally fine um but there, there is a minority and unfortunately those are loud voices that can cloud a lot of uh the sort of brand of vegan i i mean i actually had a conversation with a good colleague of mine who's a doctor and i and i mentioned about how veganism appears to have a bit of a branding problem because of those loud voices and i think it's unfortunate for the vast majority of people who don't have that sort of aggressive nature particularly online um but yeah, no, I, I, I try to steer clear of any conversations uh, about that, apart from in a podcast where I can speak to someone who's, uh, who's pretty tolerant themselves. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's true. And, you know, I, I think when I think about, look, I come from the place of in the United States and, and you know, similar statistics, I'm sure in the UK and, and, and many other developed nations. In the United States, the average person eats 225 pounds of meat per year. Okay. 
So this is the most in recorded history. So when I meet someone, let's say like Brian, who's speaking at the moment, who eats a couple of pounds of meat per year, and as or as you said, 90% of their diet is plant-based, even if I thought the ideal world would be vegan, even if I thought everyone should be vegan, from a limited time and resources perspective, it makes no sense to try to convince you or me to go vegetarian or vegan. We're already very far along. And I think people lose perspective of that in part because they don't have people like my parents hanging around where the big wins is to get someone who's eating way too many animal products, indisputably from a, from a health and scientific perspective, from an environmental perspective, and of course, from a moral perspective, to cut back by 10% or 20%. My dad going from 200 pounds of meat a year to 180 pounds of meat a year is huge because 20 pounds is a lot because you and I probably don't eat 20 pounds of meat a year. And so it's simply from a strategic perspective, um, you know, I think I agree that there's too much fixation and obsession with, with purity. And that's really how this started for me. I hated that I would describe myself as a vegetarian and I would be in certain social situations like at Thanksgiving where my dad is like, just have a damn piece of turkey, Brian. And I pop a you know, small piece of turkey in my mouth and my, my sister as siblings will do, is, you know, kind of pokes fun at me. You know, hey, Brian, I thought you were vegetarian. Um, mm. Or, you know, I have a friend who leaves a piece of meat on his plate and the waiter takes the plate away. And I'm like, I really miss eating this. And I pop it in my mouth. And whether or not I should or shouldn't, it's so silly to get caught up in these couple of moments and lose sight of the fact that, you know what, I'm trying. I'm doing mm. my, I really am. I'm doing my best here. Versus a lot of people I'm surrounded by who, for whatever reasons, many of them not entirely their fault, again, because of these systems, are not necessarily trying at all. So there's, there's so much power in reframing the focus from the couple of people, and by percentages, they really are a couple of people who are primarily eating a plant-based diet versus the majority of people who are eating the what I would call the standard American diet. And so, yeah, yeah it's tricky stuff, but I think it's a useful, useful framework for thinking about how we can engage and have conversations with the right people. I would never yeah. try to persuade you of anything. You're already doing great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it reminds me of this, uh, the, a part of uh, Jonathan Safran Foer's, I think it's his last book, um, We Are the Weather. Um, he was on the podcast last year and he almost has like this internal monologue with himself where he's beating himself up because he had a hamburger at an airport and he's like he's meant to be you know this this whole vegan advocate and he wrote eating animals and he's convinced a whole bunch of other people to eat a certain way and he's going do you know what i mean so there's this internal monologue because you try and uh, paint this picture to yourself and other people that you should be um pretty puritanical about things but in reality when it comes to day to day you know, if you do want to have a piece of meat, you shouldn't be feeling judged around it. And also, it does feed into this phenomena of um, orthorexia, this this unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. Um, and I think uh, certain aspects of diet definitely feed into that negative spiral thinking that can lead to shame, um, which is, you know, something that we want to try and avoid at all costs because that certainly over the pandemic is really magnified um, and that's been perpetuated, I think, by social media too. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, perspective. Sorry. No, I, I totally agree. And, you know, I often say what we put in our mouth is very important, but what comes out of it is also very important. And what I mean by that 
is when we're thinking about food because it's so intimate, because we all, we, many of us have control over it, we do feel that guilt and shame because we want to live a life that's in line with our values and, and so on. But, you know, voting for, the, for a better politician or donating money to a charity or volunteering at an organization or bringing one vegan meal over to your friend's potluck, that's going to be so much more impactful, right, than that one hamburger that you had at the airport. And so it's hard because we're human, but trying to keep perspective, I think, of the bigger mission, because it's not just about our own individual bodies. There's a, there is, quite frankly, a lot at stake here. The, one of the, my favorite lines in the film, uh, Dr. David Katz says, there are no healthy people on an uninhabitable planet. And so, yes, food is personal, um, but it does involve the exploitation of others um, and the planet. And so, yeah, I think that is, a, is just a helpful reminder that there's also issues at stake outside of our cholesterol levels. This is a combination for people that, you know, maybe are not like my dad, who, who, can, who can entertain some of these other, other perspectives all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, people see me as the food is medicine guy. Uh, but I, I try and remind them through um, posting the odd like, you know, jelly babies that I'll eat when I'm working clinically or like, you know, the warm donut with a jam filling that I think is absolutely amazing. And, I'll, you know, I'll post that like once a week just to remind people that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can have a bit of balance um, within the confines of, you know, the general 80-20 rule or something. Um, I, I did want to ask you about your your experience at White Oak, um, which for the listeners who haven't seen the documentary is this incredible farm that looks like the blueprint of how we should be rearing animals um, for food um, for those who want to eat animals. I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more of that experience because that that was um, that was a, quite a raw experience. I thought. Yeah, you know, visiting White Oak pasture and hanging out with with uh with will um who had the most amazing accent by the way if i only i could only aspire to have an accent like will he's just got the incredible southern draw which <laughs> that's amazing for like a year after meeting him i would just occasionally try to bring that out in my conversations with with people but no no one no one can do injustice because he's that awesome um it was a really really important um and meaningful experience in my life because it was really the Disney world of, of farms. I mean, it, it was, except it was entirely sort of authentic and real and, and not corporatized and so on. Um, but just um, a person who was very much engaged in a factory farming model that he had inherited from um, other farmers, um, you know, in his generation, prior to his generation, and decided that he wanted to uh, reinvent and go back to a simpler kind of farming, one that's more in touch with the land, one that cultivates the soil in ways that it sequesters carbon and increases water capacity, increases organic matter, uh, one that in, in includes animals uh, as part of that regenerative system, but is very kind to them and allows them to express their... And see, like, there's no language can capture this, right? When I say very kind and I compare it to factory farming, there's no words to divide torture and very kind, right? It's hard for me to articulate this, but the factory farming model is 
so abusive to animals that when you then go to white oak pastures and you see these animals who, you know, and I told this to Isabel, I was like, you know, in some ways they have better lives than Toby and Cooper. We do the absolute best we can. We take them on three walks. We love them. But these animals have it made really happy. It was so heartening to see. Um, the, the challenge, right, with this is a couple of things. And really just to frame this discussion, what I'm asking now and if, if people are not going to cut back on animal products, are there alternatives that we can offer them? And one of these alternatives is meat that doesn't come from a factory farm, that is kind to animals, kind to the planet. Um, it may even taste better and even have you know, small, small health benefits. Uh, and so um, the downside though, is that it's expensive, right? Because factory farming is optimized to you know, be very cheap and there's slaughter involved. So there's still going to be the death of, of a living animal. And now we get into interesting philosophy because, okay, is it ever okay to kill? Maybe not, but maybe it is because these animals had incredible lives up until that moment. And Will makes this point that, uh, you know, he's seen people die um, very slowly and gradually. Um, and I'm kind of like one of these right to die people even. I mean, now we're in a whole other topic, right? But like I'm into mm -hmm. the idea that people shouldn't have to, you know, suffer for 40 years before the end of their life. So things can get kind of odd and philosophical. But at the end of the day, if someone is going to eat meat, um, this is a whole other um, um, way of, of, of engaging um, with animal products. And I'm really grateful for Will and his kindness and generosity and and showing me around. And I even think to myself, just to bring this home, right? Like my, my wife's parents may be visiting for Thanksgiving and I'm not sure that I can convince them to have this meal be vegan. So I have an opportunity now. Do I let them bring over their, you know, a typical turkey and maybe we'll make it? Or do I pull on what feels like a conflict in my mind, but maybe I order a, a turkey from Will's farm as a way to, to balance out those, those interests. So yeah, yeah. I really, I, I think people will love that 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 scene with Will, who's an incredible person, and and the, the farming uh, that he does is just. The, I think like one of the, probably, if not the best, one of the best um, farms in the world. Really cool stuff. I am delighted to have the podcast sponsored by Pinterest today. Now, I've been using Pinterest for years in both a personal capacity as well as for my business. So I'm looking forward to telling you a bit about why I think it's a fantastic platform for creative inspiration that you can take action from and how I use it myself. So personal reasons for using Pinterest. For myself, I've been doing a lot more regular live TV now and on the pod, I've had a friend of mine talk about slow fashion and the environmental impact of overconsumption. So over the last few years, I've been consciously trying to reduce my consumption of clothing products and, you know, instead of buying new stuff, trying to think of ways in which to use old outfits and brush them up so I'm still presentable on live TV. Um, but there are some hacks that you can use where I can use clothes that I already have and still stay in fashion. And I use Pinterest for inspiration 
when I jump on Pinterest, I can you know see what kind of colors are in season right now, how things might look uh, coordinated with different elements of a, an outfit, whether it be black jeans and a shirt, but you know mixing it up with a t-shirt underneath, for example, you know things that I probably wouldn't have thought of to do myself because I'm not much of a fashionista, and I it is still important for me to look relatively presentable when I'm doing live TV. I also use it to better design my kitchen. So I actually shared some boards with my partner that we could collaborate on uh, ideas that brought warmth and personality to where I spend most of my time in the kitchen. And we would look at different color schemes, different ideas from other people who have made their kitchens from scratch. And I've actually since made a kitchen bar where I do all of my filming. Uh, I do all my podcasts, including where I'm recording right now. It's where I spend most of my time. And I got a lot of inspiration from Pinterest, looking at the different types of textures, the different stones, all that kind of good stuff I found on Pinterest. It was brilliant. There were a couple of business reasons why I use Pinterest as well. So I'm actually in the process of creating a few other cookbooks and reviewing a number of cookbook cover ideas to see how I can refresh the look of the previous books without really losing the essence of the Doctor's Kitchen brand. And so again, color schemes, seeing what other people have done, how they've used different elements of photography, the design features, all these different things you can find in one place on Pinterest. It's brilliant. And I'm also using it for my new app. So it's a very niche use of Pinterest, I guess, but uh, it's actually helping me design the user flows, the onboarding experience and the color coordinations for the Doctor's Kitchen brand as well. So if you type in user flows or onboarding in Pinterest, you'll actually get a number of ideas of different apps. And there might be wellness apps, meditation apps, food apps, but the way in which you onboard somebody onto the app is actually quite important. And getting some ideas about how other companies have done this and other apps have done this in the past is absolutely brilliant. Like I said, it's a bit of a niche use of Pinterest, but I guess it just shows you how diverse the content is on the platform and how versatile the use cases are. With Pinterest, I really feel that it's not just a place where you can spend hours and feel like you've wasted time. I actually feel super motivated and inspired when I visit the platform and it's genuinely helped me in a personal capacity as well as from a business perspective. So go check it out and you just might surprise yourself. There's a bit in at the start of that scene, uh, once you've got over the fact that he's got this amazing voice, where he, he talks about his sort of process to where he's become now, where he's, you know, at this holistic farm management system. And he says something like, you know, I used to think a good farm was where you kept the animals, you gave them loads of food, you um, sheltered them, you didn't poke them or harm them and then you slaughtered them as quickly as possible and and then he was like that is like nowhere near enough and now everything he does uh just to bring it home for, for people who haven't seen it yet who i recommend everyone watch this as i was saying the intro and the outro but um he he talks about how he's trying to create the perfect environment for 
a pig to do exactly what it was designed to do to running around and graze and and the same thing for all the other different species that they've got on this um this farm and i just thought that was i mean i mean to the point where they don't castrate the animals they don't you know uh pin them they don't do anything like that they just allow them to almost live as if they are in the wild and i thought that was that was so incredible um also, you have the ethics of, you know, having to kill the animal afterwards and the way they do that. But the, the dignity that I think he's giving these uh, animals, uh, I, I just thought it was incredible. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a brilliant part. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. It was really fun. And I'm grateful for him. And, and again, you know, whenever we're thinking about these alternatives to factory farming, and we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on, on the others, we're thinking about pros and cons, right? Because... Yes, there has to be an animal that's slaughtered. But again, it's always worth thinking about like the worst case scenario, which is that 99% of farms in the United States are factory farms. 90% globally are factory farms. So, you know, I'll tell my vegan friends, for example, it makes no sense whatsoever to even spend an ounce of energy critiquing this kind of of um, model in a serious way, because what, what Will is doing is, is just incredible. And so mm. uh, I want people to eat more plant-based foods. I really do. <laughs> I want people to cut back on animal products, but if they're going to eat meat, um, I would be thrilled if it came from um, a place um, like, like Will's white oak pasture. So yeah, it's, it's really, um, really cool. And even, you know, the fact that he's He's revived that economy. You know, he's employing mm. so many people in his town. Like it touches upon this very kind of holistic model that in some ways, some of the other al- alternatives um, don't. Um, and we'll talk about them, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, it's really, really interesting and, and cool stuff. And I just told Will, though, off camera, I was like, the problem is you're too cool and amazing. Like, who the heck can do this? I mean, are there really that many farmers that can? And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm who I am. I don't know a lot of farmers. So I, you know, I don't know how, how scalable this initiative is, but for, for whatever it is, it's, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, you know, something that you, you bring to light at the end of the movie as well, where you wrap things up because you, you know, you, you visit cell-based um, meat uh, producers you meet the, you know, the Beyond Meat guys and all the other uh, people that are creating purely plant-based uh, proteins. But you question everything. It's not like, oh, this is the answer. And there have been some fantastic documentaries that I think are great collectively because it makes people more conscious about food that they're eating, right? I can, I can definitely uh, get on board with, with that. But I think where they fall down, particularly amongst the scientific community, is that it is communicated in a way whereby the answer is always just do this and that's fine even you know the ones that are pro regenerative farming is like oh just let's just go for this um, amazing crop rotation system it, it sequesters carbon it's much better for the environment you can still eat good quality meat it has some nutritional benefits over uh, factory farm meat um, this is all you need to do whereas actually at the end of yours you're like well cell-based meats might actually cost more to the environment and they do, they definitely cost a lot more money right now plant-based proteins still have their own issues with additives and etc cetera, etc cetera. the regenerative farming model that you saw the most perfect animal farm you know ethics aside um how scalable is that you, it, and, and so you allow the viewer to make up their own mind after watching it so someone who has a persuasion that still wants to eat meat 
might do better and might reduce their food intake. Someone who's vegan, you know, questions just how well, it's questions the quality of the foods that they're currently consuming and and weighs that up against climate change as well because those are conversations that a lot of people aren't having so i, I think that you know it is a very it, it's i for some people i think it'll be frustrating because they just want to know the answer and we're quite binary humans i don't know if that was like one of the comments that you've got after after showcasing it to people i you know i didn't want to interrupt you because i love everything you said and that's like speaks to my heart i mean what you just described is really the core feeling I have right now in life um, and, and with this film. Um, it's frustrating, but there really are often no simple answers and there are pros mm -hmm. and cons and different values that are in conflict with one another. And, you know, I, and I know it's not a, you know, political show here, but I also see this with my, you know, I have some, I'm liberal, I have some conservative friends and the, the many of my smartest friends are not crazy they're on a different political spectrum but they actually have similar values to me and they just have a different method for re reaching that utopia and i the more i hang out with people who are different than me i start to see a kind of um possibility of working together and it's just it's the same thing with food conversations which can be so charged and so heated mm. and um yeah, there are pros and cons to all of these different solutions and you you outlined um, many of them brilliantly. And I think it is hard because people do want to be told what to do. They don't have a lot of time to spend, like I have 10 years thinking about these complex topics and they just want to know, you know, I hear you, but it's like Brussels sprouts or kale going to have more antioxidants <laughs> or, uh, you know, um, is it better to eat fish or chicken from an animal welfare perspective? Um, I teach a class and I'm uh, at, at a university and one of the students said, yeah, I hear you, but which is healthier, farmed fish or wild, uh, wild caught fish? And I have to spend 10 minutes explaining that it's, it's complicated. It's not one is yeah. healthier or other. There's different, um, different components here. So I think it will frustrate some people, but at least it gives people the information and tools that they need to think about this. And the good news, very few people think factory farming is a good idea. Very few people think that we should be eating over 200 pounds of meat a year. Very few people think it's good that, you know, in the United States, for example, one out of 10 people get the recommended amounts of fruits and vegetables in their diet. And this is what frustrates me so much. We agree on so much, so much, yeah. but we get caught up in these fringe, you know, philosophical, idealistic kinds of conversations about what the future of our food system looks like. Can we just make it a tiny bit better? That would be great to start. And then after that, we can start getting into these really fancy debates. And I feel this way, quite, quite frankly, about, about the health community. We just mm. need more people to eat fruits and vegetables. It's really like pretty simple, no? Isn't that the cornerstone of, of part of the problem is that people are eating way too many processed foods, not whole foods, not enough fruits and vegetables. And there's so many books and discussions and debate. And for the most part, people agree on that. And yet my parents still will not eat a damn avocado. It's like that basic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting heated here. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I totally, it, it definitely resonates with me. Um, you know, part of my TED talk uh, when I when we did it a couple of years ago now was painting the picture of nutrition conflicts, um, whereby eighty percent, roughly, let's say, of all the different dietary regimens actually 
uh, overlap. So if you have this Venn diagram and you put paleo and vegan and all the rest of it, a lot of the overlapping themes are the same. So instead of fighting about the minority, you should really just focus it down to the principles. And then, you know, the solutions are simple. Uh, the science is complex. Implementation is exceptionally hard. Um, so where I'm having conversations with uh, hostel caterers, where I'm having conversations with people uh, in public sector um, food environments, um, you know, creating a landscape where it's easy to opt into a healthy way of eating. That's really the challenge, um, creating like a salutogenic environment where you can have, you know, if you don't want avocados, you can have like fresh tomatoes or you can have all the different things. And we actually incentivize that and we subsidize those kind of foods rather than the high fructose corn syrup and all the other additives that we have to process foods right now that are cheap and targeted at the most vulnerable people. Um, so yeah, there's definitely, and I think also, um, given that the movie was focused on the US, I think there's also um, a bit of an arrogance amongst the UK residents that this is an American problem and it's not a UK problem. But like you just mentioned there, most of the factories are actually, uh, most of meat is produced from factory farms. Maybe not as bad as the US, but certainly factory farms over here as well that we just, we don't really see or we don't really hear about that much. Oh yeah, there are plenty of terrible factory farms in the UK. No, they're, they're, they're everywhere and they're, and they're growing. And I, unfortunately, I expect that they will continue to grow as people go through that demographic transition of, you know, rising out of poverty and being able to eat, eat more foods, which in, you know, expensive foods, which is a, from one perspective is a really good thing, but the mm. factory farming model is not the, is not the, uh, the answer to that. Um, oh, I had something at the tip of my tongue that I was really excited to, to respond to you about. Um, oh, I was going to say this, um, you're, you know, you're, you're smarter than me and you've landed on some, some probably this much sooner than me, but I thought as like, you just tell people they do things, but it's about this designing the environment, right? So people eat food based on price, on taste and convenience. And so if food is not affordable, delicious and available readily, very few solutions are, are going to work. And so that's where mm. thinking about these systemic solutions, um, some of which we've talked about, like, you know, regenerative agriculture or plant-based meat, cell-based meat, and making, you know, affordable fruits and veggies and so on accessible plays a key role. What I, what, I, what I struggle with is, you know, getting people to try the foods and then give it a little bit of time. Because I know with me, like when I had this ethical realization, I had pasta for like a month because I didn't know that like <laughs> I could ever eat kale or quinoa or other things. And it, it took me, my wife took me to have Indian food and Thai food for the first time, you know, in my mid twenties. Um, and now it's like, these are my favorite cuisines. So I don't know what your experience is like, but I just, it's that that's a challenge I find is even if you pr provide these fruits and vegetables and so on for people, it's going to take them time to, I think, allow their taste buds to change. And that's something that, that Dr. David Katz said off camera was that it takes a couple weeks and then your taste buds kind of transform. So I don't know if we want to solve all the world's problems on this podcast discussion, but that's another one that I find find quite quite challenging. And I see it in my dad, who now will call me once a week with his kale smoothie that he really really loves. Um, so like change is possible, but it took you know it took ten, I'm thirty two. It took thirty years of stubbornness with my my dad to uh, to get him to change. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's certainly true that your taste buds are certainly. Um 
plastic, uh, they, they can change. Um, but if you're constantly um, being hit with dopamine uh, from the sugar that we know, you know, elicits that uh, dopaminergic response, you're going to uh, create a habit around it. Some people call it addicted to food. I know that's quite triggering for people, but it's essentially what's happening. You are becoming dependent on this dopamine hit from sugar and, and refined foods that are designed to be hyper palatable, um, uh, calorie rich and, and unfortunately nutrient poor. Um, so when you take yourself off, quote unquote, uh, those kind of foods and you introduce other foods that are more bitter in terms of their their palatability, uh, and taste it there is a transition period that you have to get through and i think for certain people um getting over that hump could be weeks it could be a little bit longer um there could be some you know challenging uh symptoms in the meantime as well it's almost like you know we're talking about getting people off certain foods i'm actually going to be chatting to food uh, about food addiction uh, on a podcast with a psychologist uh, soon actually um but the, I, I guess also my worry um like you just mentioned with the, the pasta uh, comment, is a lot of um, impressionable young people are warming towards veganism or plant-based eating because it's cool and they aspire to be like their TikTok stars or their celebrities that have all gone plant-based who can afford to have a beautiful, well-balanced diet that's made by a nutritionist that is supplemented with all the right supplements and stuff. Whereas, you know, most people don't have access to that information, can't afford the supplements and might find themselves in, on a pretty nutrient poor diet of just like pasta because they don't really have the other options. Or they might go for the, you know, new McDonald's vegan burger, which is, you know, <laughs> it doesn't have the processed meat, but it's still not great. Um, so that that's one of my worries and one of my quandaries around this whole movement towards plant-based eating. Have, have you been asked about that before? Yeah, definitely. And I think for a lot of people, um, it, the answer for them comes from a place of how cynical or optimistic they are about our ability to transform our, our food system from a place that um, is along this axum of highly pragmatic to highly ideal. And when I think of this person who's eating, no longer eating, you know, uh, processed meats all the time, but now switches to pasta, their health might not be better, but the environmental impact and the animal cruelty component is better versus if I, you know, and you could kind of play these different factors out. And of course it would be ideal if, you know, that person ate whole plant-based foods and maybe supplemented with some animal products, but wasn't eating pasta or wasn't eating the Beyond Burger all the time. And I think it comes from a, a, this question, you know, um, my dad will have a kale smoothie once in a while, and I'm really excited about that. But he probably would have Beyond Meat a lot because it tastes still still relatively salty, still fatty, and so on. It's not equivalent to a health perspective from a kale to kale. Uh, and so the question is, should I and we ask for more from people and, and expect more and hope more and push for more? Or should we be happy with settling for something that's, that's great from an environmental perspective, phenomenal on an animal welfare perspective, marginally better maybe from a health perspective. And you might mm. say to me, well, why are you doing this, Brian? Let's, why, why stop there? Let's do it all. And I say to that, go ahead. 
let's let's mm. let's let's push all of these solutions and all these agendas and let's please try to get more fruits and vegetables in in schools and hospital cafeterias and let's please try to provide you know subsidies for fruits and vegetables and all of that but we don't need to bother attacking plant-based meat companies or or cell-based meat companies or or people like will or you know so on it just we're going to need different people to to explore different solutions because nobody has the answer to what is what is possible but yeah these trade-offs are real and i don't think it makes sense to lie or be anti-scientific about it anyone who thinks that impossible foods and beyond meat is equivalent to a carrot is just being silly i mean we know <laughs> that we know that whole plant-based foods are are very very healthy uh and so I don't have the answers because there are no answers. It's tricky. Yeah, <laughs> I too. I love the honesty, and uh, I think that's really reflective in the in the piece of work um, that you've put out there. And I think it's. Um, I'm excited for people to watch it. Um, what, what What are you up to next? What's uh, What's next on the reducitarianism journey? I have two answers to that. One, and it's been wonderful. I've been on like a mini sabbatical. I I I've never felt so nice light and clear. It's been like 10 years of nonstop. Um, and after the film, I was like close to burnout. And I really, mm. I just wanted to enjoy walking my dogs and being with my wife. And, and I still, of course, I'm working, I'm doing things, but I'm not pushing as much as I normally am. And it feels great. And it's the, I'm so happy I'm doing it. And I'm sure I'll wake up one day and be bored out of my mind and ready to be anxious and neurotic and ready to roll with with some new venture, but right now I feel a sense of, of peace, which is really, really cool, in part because the film was was so difficult. Um, a couple things. One, Meet Me Halfway, the book is coming out, um, and it comes out uh, April 22nd on Earth Day, which I'm very excited about. Um, we have our annual summit, our Reducitarian Conference, where we bring together about 750 folks who are very spirited and very passionate and have different ideas, much like we're discussing about Amazing. how to change our food system, um, but are open to the idea that we need plurality and different approaches. And we all agree on ending factory farming and so on. And we're going to let go of some of those more philosophical ideas. We're also starting a fellowship program where we're going to have undergraduate students receive mentorship and access to seminars and internships, paid internships, um, and kind of focus on creating this next generation of uh, advocates and activists. Because as, as I just mentioned, I'm getting tired. So we're going to have to need to pass, <laughs> pass it on to the next group of people. So lots of lots of really, really cool things, but just genuinely still in a, in a beautiful uh, moment of feeling gratitude and and just joy over the fact that Meet Me Halfway, the documentary is out and getting to speak to awesome people like you about about a topic that I love. That's epic, man. I can't wait to to, to see everything that happens after this as well. And um, where can we see it uh, in the UK? I know I went via Vimeo. Uh, is that is that the main stay of uh, where, where you can watch it? I know that it's on Google Play, Vimeo. Um, I'm pretty sure Amazon... And Apple, okay. TV, Apple TV, if you if you have that out there, um, Vimeo, yeah, lots anywhere you could rent a movie for you know four dollars, it's it's probably available to you. Great, great. You need to get this on Netflix, dude. I'm, wor I'm working <laughs> on it. You have any you work have on it, it, man? I, honestly, it needs to be on Netflix because it's uh, it's brilliant. It's a lovely. Um, it, it's not like the antithesis of the documentaries that we've all seen. It's just the most pragmatic. 
uh, and it's not, you know, it's not offensively uh, vegan. It's not offensively the. It's 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 just begging the question. I think that's why I'm I'm just such a fan of the of the of the movie. Um. So yeah, yeah, definitely go watch it. You're, I really appreciate that. Thank you. This has been such fun, and yes, hopefully the the film will will make its way onto the next next tier of streaming platforms. Um, but we'll, <laughs> we'll 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 make it we'll make it have a long shelf life for many years to come. And yeah, I really I really had such a, such a great time chatting with you. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed that podcast episode with Brian Capeman. Remember, you can get the movie links and everything that you heard about today on the doctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast page. And these are my personal ways in which to reduce meat consumption while still having almost like a meaty texture whenever you cook. So one of my favorite things to do is uh, oyster mushrooms that you just tear up and then you bake them in uh, soy, garlic, paprika and some sort of molasses whether it be uh, blackstrap molasses or pomegranate molasses that combination baked for about 25 minutes to 30 minutes turning halfway through just creates a wonderful meaty texture and you can put that in tacos you can put it on top of mash you can do it just with simple greens it really works well second thing is hemp seeds in shakes i always add shelled hemp seeds to increase your protein content um, it's a good way of making sure that you're not reducing your protein stores which is very important when it comes to enzymes cell generation hormone uh, production all these different elements that you need protein for beyond just muscle growth and um, lastly pure lentils so pre-cooked pure lentils instead of having a full mince for example you can half your mince and have pure lentils if you still want to eat meat for example and that way you reduce your meat content increase your fiber content and you're not really missing out on the flavor anyway those are my three top tips there's plenty more ideas of non-meat recipes to reduce your meat consumption if you want to and i'll see you here next week deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.